0: Today in the Garage, we have Anna Maria Enanajor and Ryan Hinlarski. Anna Maria Enanajor is a partner at Ruby Schiller Enanajor Di Giuseppe Barristers, where she practices criminal defense, regulatory, constitutional law, and civil law, where it intersects with the state accountability. She defends clients accused of criminal misconduct in a variety of cases, including white-collar crime, murder, and manslaughter drug offenses, human trafficking offenses, sexual offenses, and fraud. She also acts for clients in professional misconduct and quasi-criminal regulatory matters. She has argued before all levels of court in Ontario and before the Supreme Court of Canada. Ryan Henlarski defends individuals charged with a range of offenses, from less serious charges such as domestic assault and impaired driving, to very serious offenses such as trafficking cocaine, sexual assault, and sexual interference, break and enter, aggravated assault, and murder. He has successfully defended hundreds of individuals and has represented people at every level of court in Ontario. He believes that every individual charged with criminal offenses deserves a thorough and vigorous defense and deserves to have a lawyer that is accessible to explain the criminal justice process at every step in the proceedings. Whether you're driving your Audi A7, shredding your Gibson, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Anna Maria, Ryan, I'm so happy to have you both with us here today in the garage. Thanks for having me, Marco.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: I'd like to get started with uh, learning a little bit about your start in criminal law. We'll start with you, Anna Maria. Where'd you get your start?
1: So I had a circuitous route to criminal defense. Uh, In law school, I didn't uh, take a lot of criminal classes, I thought crim and family law were very high drama and I wouldn't be able to handle them so I focused on <laughs> tax <laughs> administrative law cr- uh, corporate commercial litigation um, and then I clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada um, and got a little bit of, of a more of a taste of criminal law and the issues and the the matters and the, the questions and what was at stake um, and that increased my interest in criminal law, but I wasn't certain um, that I was ready to go into that field. I practiced, I ended up moving to the States and practicing in New York in um, corporate commercial litigation. It had an element of white collar crime. We did some FBI um, antitrust uh, defenses um, and, Uh, allegations of corruption and bribery and that made me a little bit more interested in the the field but it wasn't until I engaged in pro bono work um, for prisoners on Rikers Island that I was captured by the project of criminal defense Um, absent an understanding of the social context in which prosecutions take place it wasn't um, it was difficult for me to devote myself at the level of commitment that is required I think of a criminal defense lawyer to this work and the work that I did on the Rikers Island prisoners um, project where we sued the, the prison for uh, breaches of civil rights against prisoners on Rikers Island that work taught me that so much of criminal law isn't just a, isn't just about single disputes but it is about the development of a body of law that protects and stands up for the most vulnerable in our society, and many of whom are people who are marginalized, disenfranchised, racialized. One of the things that really struck me about the my experience doing that pro bono work in New York was I was in central Manhattan for most of my working day. I would take the subway to my office um, you know, everyone for the large majority was white, but my law firm really made a um, a commitment to uh, recruiting and retaining attorneys of color. So there were attorneys of color in, in the office. But nothing compared me to the stark contrast between the environment with, with which uh, that I was surrounded by and going to Rikers Island and seeing essentially what was just black and Hispanic men in cages. And just that visual contrast something has to be wrong with a system that produces such disparate outcomes. Uh, and the further that I looked into it, the more I understood about how in the, in the American context, criminal, um, criminal regulation and sanction was leveraged as a tool to perpetuate racist systems in the United States. And at the time, this was around 2011, 2012, um, we had in Canada a conservative government that was passing legislation that mirrored some of the tools that were implemented in the United States under the pretext of creating safer communities, um, but were really dog whistles against, um, that, that were, they're really uh, sort of dog whistles that um, made me realize how powerful this tool of criminal justice and what a blunt instrument it was and what damage it could do in society, Um, especially for the vulnerable and the marginalized, and to see the mistakes of the United States being adopted um, by Canada, uh, particularly things like um, the... The bill that was passed by the Conservative government in two thousand and eleven that permitted judges to exceed a parole ineligibility period of twenty five years for um, for uh, first degree murder offenses things like that where you have absurd and absurd outcomes in the justice system. people are now be, are able to be sentenced to seventy five one hundred years in prison um, for for what purpose and to what end, and who is being sent who's, who 's who's being sentenced. And when I when I thought about sort of the broader implications of what criminal justice represents and how it really is this um, fight for the humanity of those who are the least privileged in society, um, that's when I was like, oh, you know, I I found my calling. I was sort of like lost and meandering, but I'm like, no, this is this is it. This is what I have to do, um, and. And also, just um, there were a lot of criminal defense lawyers that I had admired from afar. Practicing in in, in New York, I um, got on Twitter and and started following. You know, Gerald Chan, Nader Hassan. Um, I had always admired Marie Hennen, um Clayton Ruby, uh, Brian Greenspan, and just what they what they brought to their work showed me that it was not just a a nine-to-five job, but it was truly a vocation. Um, what Brian Greenspan did t- to basically put his practice on hold and tour the country advocating against the death penalty in Canada is, um, in, in the, I think it was the sev- in the 70s, um, is an unbelievable commitment to values um, and, and really something that I started admiring. And I said, you know, I want to I be like these people. Um, I, I want that to be, I want my work to be my, my life's mission. That was a very long answer.
0: (laughs) Was it Brian or Eddie? It was that, it was. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, sorry. Just wanted to confirm. I I, I could tell it was a slip of your tongue at that point.
1: It was, it was, it was, sorry. I know it's Eddie. (laughs) I knew it was Eddie. Yes. Yeah. I didn't think
0: you'd get that wrong. I just think it was, you were thinking about Brian Greenspan because of the timeline I could tell. Um, but yes, I, I, that's a long answer. Probably. As far as the season two of The Law Garage goes, I think that's going to be the top uh, answer as to how you, somebody got into criminal law. Hey, uh,
2: you haven't even heard my answer yet. <laughs> I, I kind of know you already. That's, <laughs> that's why.
0: <not> <laughs> <laughs> Let's, Ryan, how would you get your start in this criminal law?
2: So I also took a circuitous route, but not as circuitous as Anna Maria. I, I would say that, that my start, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer when I saw the O.J. Simpson trial. When I was, uh, I think that was 95, so I was 12, 13 years old when I was watching the O.J. Simpson trial. And I was fascinated by this trial unfolding. And uh, I didn't, I remember the one fact that I absorbed at the time was that Officer Philip Van Adder had brought a vial of O.J. Simpson's blood to his residence. And so, if, if you watch any of the cross examination of Barry Sheck, who was the DNA expert, who who was to me was the person who um, who was most integral to the defense. I, I loved Johnny Cochran, but I, I'm not sure that if I were on the jury, he would be the the main uh, reason his arguments where where I would acquit. So, I was watching I was watching Barry Sheck plant these other possible theories of how the dna got into for example the socks um, that were in oj simpson's residence and and i can remember watching the cross-examination and thinking to myself if i were on the jury i would acquit because why is a police officer bringing a vial of oj simpson's blood to his house why is why are there a pair of socks that appeared uh, in a later point in time rather than an earlier point in time. That's the point in time, by the way, where Barry Sheck says, how about that, Mr. Fung? The famous line. <laughs> it's it's the socks. The socks, which had the blood, uh, were not there in the initial picture. So if I'm watching this on the jury, forget about the racial context and the racial issues. I am acquitting. That's it. You should not have brought a vial of blood To his house. Um, So I can remember being the only person in my class to think um, O.J. Simpson should be acquitted. People where they were giving me a hard time, you know, they were, no, he's going to be found guilty. He's guilty. I said, okay, I I think he's going to be acquitted. And then he was acquitted, uh, as we all know. And I can remember this feeling of exhilaration about the acquittal uh, that... Even though he, he probably did the crime, that's not exactly the issue. It's whether you can prove he did the crime. And they failed to prove it for various reasons. So I, I think I always thought the jury got the verdict right. And that, that experience and that exhilaration of experiencing that acquittal made me want to be a criminal defense lawyer. I was always into criminal defense. So after my first year, I um, I worked for a a sole practitioner. I you know had my whole life planned out, and then law school is a funny thing um, in terms of what it does to people. Uh, It's you know it's one of the reasons why I love engaging with students because I come back for second year at law school, and all of a sudden people start asking me where are you applying to, where are you going to article. I had just finished my experience as a first year summer student. Like I hadn't really given it much thought, but then there was so much going on. Like there was like this competitive fray. And I think I like a lot of other um, law students had like this super type a personality, like, okay, you know, if there's a competition, I have to win it. So, I I enter this fray into applying for the Bay Street process and uh, and I ended up with a a great firm, uh, McCarthy Tetro, never pausing to ask myself, do I want to do this? What area of law do I want to practice? Who am I? Where do my skills and abilities lie? Um, so I articled there and, um, and before the end of it, I, I knew that there was no way I could practice on Bay street. This was not a viable thing for me. It was like grating at me every day. And so uh, before the end of articling, I I was, um, I was lucky I had, uh, I, I got a job with the now late Eddie Greenspan who Anna Maria mentioned. And that's my start in criminal law. I can remember before my call to the bar, I started working. And I remember at the first jail visit I ever did was was for someone charged with first degree murder. And it was like this light bulb went off. Um because a lot of people would hate it. But for some reason I just felt relieved in some way that I didn't have to work on, you know, a lease termination. <laughs> or, I don't know, like a contractual dispute. Like, I just felt relief, and I was just interested. Um, it was sort of like w- what Anne-Marie was talking about when she went to Rikers Island. There have to be people like us. I mean, who is this person? What was his educational background? What was his professional background? How did he grow up? Where did he grow up? What was his family like? I was just hooked in from the first meeting and um, and i've i've never looked back that was my start in criminal law and and it was just the beginning of okay this is this is what i want to do and and not only that it's the only thing i can do
0: so do you go back to those feelings even now from time to time to keep your motivation going
2: i'm not sure about that i mean I'm, my motivation doesn't wane. Sometimes I'm always highly motivated for every case. Sometimes the job can get to you. It's very stressful and the stress never never ends and it's very hard and the hard never ends. I mean, I think the dream of a corporate lawyer on Bay street is I'm going to work hard for the first five, 10 years. Then I'm going to do the easy stuff and dump work on my associates and make a lot of money. Um, and I think for a criminal lawyer, that never happens whether you're practicing 10 years 20 years 30 years sure you can have an associate that can help you uh, and an articling student who can help you but you're the one presenting you're the one asking the questions you better have read every piece of disclosure you better have gone to the scene you better know everything it never ends so that sometimes it can trigger these thoughts like "Mm, you know, I wish I could do something else, um, but then I then I think back to uh, then I think back to no, actually, you know what? I'm very lucky to get some to get to do something that I, I love to do, and I enjoy, and I'm good at, and I just try to focus on that and not let those the grass is greener somewhere else uh, enter into my
0: mind. What what still excites you uh, about this profession, Anna Maria?
1: I was thinking about this question, and I recently had an unexpected emotional reaction to um, a hearing that I was doing. I don't often do bail hearings, um, but the when I think about the hearings that give me the most satisfaction, is often a bail hearing because it's an immediate relief to somebody who is in custody, even though they are legally innocent. And I did a contested bail hearing recently, and... Um, when the, the justice of the peace um, said the words, I am ordering your release, I, like, almost tears flooded in, into my eyes because this is somebody who, like, my, my client happened to be um, a person of color and they were in custody and the crown was, was vehemently opposing their release. And just the, the knowledge that in, a, like, through preparation, through analysis, through outworking the crown... I can change somebody's life, give them freedom, it's something that never ceases to motivate me, and something that makes my work feel so worthwhile, irrespective of all of the challenges, and and as Ryan mentioned, there are so many challenges in criminal law, it is an incredibly stressful job, and I think it's gotten only more stressful um, in recent years with uh, the confluence of a number of factors, the um uh, uh you know increase in technology which makes it make, makes our clients and which makes courts and judges expect so much more of us 24 hours a day which is very challenging and also the pandemic which um has increased our vulnerability as people but also has has made it more difficult to, for us to move our clients matters along um and has has made i'm uh, going to be doing a a bail review next week for a client who is in a in custody in a uh, detention center that has had constant outbreaks and we had and the, the institution wouldn't give him or failed to give him his second dose of the vaccine and just the urgency of that situation where his it's not just his liberty it's now it's now been amped up or amplified to his, his life might be at risk. Just the, the, the stress that is at stake, uh, the, the, the stress of what is at stake in those situations, I think has made our profession particularly more difficult in the last little while. But knowing that, you know, you can have an impact on someone's life um, in a very meaningful way is, is very, very motivating.
0: I, just to follow up. I personally love bail hearings. It's one of my, f- the best parts of our job, I think, because it is, the stakes are so high, so quick, so early, so much is counting on it. Your relationship with your client kind of builds off of it. If you're successful, they're out of custody, then you can build a defense in your office. You don't have to make these jail visits. Bail is an important part of the process and we can't take for granted that it's, it's a fight that we have to win. And so... As a younger lawyer who gets their feet wet in bail court a lot more than in trial court, those bail hearings are as, are as, just as important as any trial where custody is going to be uh, grant, uh, imposed after a conviction.
1: Yeah. And I think that's amplified in cases where, where you look at the statistics that people are just more likely to plead guilty if they don't receive, get exactly. bail or they're, they're unable to prepare for their defense. And I, I think it's in some cases it's, it's, it's absolutely, it blows my mind, the restrictions of how, how bail restricts people's ability to prep their own defense, um, uh, to 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 communi- course, communicate with their counsel. I've had such difficulty communicating with some of my clients in custody. And I just, I, you know, if you're not in the criminal justice system, you don't know that this exists and how closely it approximates the practices of countries that we has a nation criticized for their right. human rights abuses, and we're doing the exact same thing. It's it's out, outrageous.
0: I, I don't think the general public really appreciates that dynamic, Ryan.
2: Well, I was I was just going to say that that to me another aspect of the importance of bail. I mean, I agree with what both of you have said, but um, it's the testifying. You've got to get up there and testify. Uh, sometimes, if you call your client and. Imagine what the person is going through if the person were out of custody and they could shower and they could compose themselves and they weren't you know a mess of a human being because they were locked down all the time. They could testify a lot better. Maybe they'd be found not guilty if they could tell their story. You know, I I had a client uh, I can remember when he was in custody. I thought he was I thought he was nuts. I thought this was a mental health case his conviction uh, from that was uh, putting him in that situation where he couldn't get bail was overturned by the court of appeal and he got bail on his own recognisance and when he came out of jail he was a composed man well dressed uh, not crazy did not have um you know any apparent mental illnesses and then i i, I found out later That this was a person who, uh, because of that conviction that was overturned, he had spent approximately, before it was illegal, approximately something like 200 days in solitary confinement. Uh, And when he was in custody because of that experience and because he was getting locked down all the time, that's why he was, he appeared crazy to me because of the circumstances that had been imposed on him. By the state, unjustly. I mean, just imagine it 200 days in solitary confinement, what that means. So he could not have testified if he had not got bail. It would have been possible for me to call him as a witness. And so getting him out on bail and having him, giving him the opportunity to experience life like a, a human being. Uh, that's what enabled him to testify. That's what enabled him to appear to the jury like a, a person who um, who could be believed. So, so much is riding on that bail decision. It's not only that they're more likely to plead guilty. They're less likely to testify. They're less likely to be believed if they testify. So much is riding on bail, going back to the point of the stress we endure, Everybody else moves on with their day when a person is detained, except the accused, their family, and the defense lawyer who's stuck with what
0: to do next. How do you how do you get past that, Ryan? Are there those feelings that we encounter as defense lawyers, where from time to time we have to accept the fact that our clients are going to be imprisoned. How do you get past that?
2: I don't think you do get past it. Uh, I'm n- I'm not sure you do get past it. It's part of what makes the profession difficult and not for everyone. We get the phone calls of people who tell us they've been locked down for five days straight and they haven't showered. Uh, I'd never get over a loss on on bail. The only time, you know, the only time maybe you can say I I, I get over it is if there's some circumstance where. I know that the, the circumstances are so bad that bail is very, very unlikely. Uh, maybe in that circumstance, I can I can uh, sort of move on and say, well, it's not my fault. But to lose a bail hearing, to believe that the person should be out of, of custody, there's a good plan of release, he's presumed innocent, and to lose and then to then get the phone calls and figure out what to do, um, and bring bail reviews which you know now um it used to be you could file your application and get it on three days notice i just filed a bail review successfully uh, my client was in jail for seven weeks after i filed the application wow. seven weeks so I, I i don't i don't think that you get over uh, I don't think that you get over it. I don't get over it if I lose a bail hearing and my client's sitting in custody. I have relationships with these people. Something that is interesting, I mean, I wonder if this is the same with you and Anna Maria. I get on really well with my clients, more than like the regular people, (laughs) you know? Like I'll be with my friends and my friends are talking about something boring. Like, I don't know what's a, a conversation that I'll have with my friends will be about... I don't know private schools and summer camps and uh, Toronto real estate and and I'll be thinking to myself you know my my conversations with my clients are better than
0: this. What do you think, Anna Maria?
1: It depends on the client. (laughs) 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 It depends on the uh, really depends on the client Um, and and the role that I that I or I guess the persona that I that I take on depends on the client as well. Like there's some clients that are very young and kind of remind me of my younger brother. And I take on either a big sister or kind of a maternal role. Um, There are other clients where uh, they're maybe like about my age and, and um, maybe higher education level where I sort of have, I, I, I correspond with them as if they're my co-counsel in a way I like share. Okay. Here's the strategy. Here's, here's what we're going to do. What, what are your inputs on the strategy? What, what's your input on the strategy? And then there's some clients where I represent them, but they actually, they do scare me. Um, they scare me. And I think about how to balance that with my, cor- with my duty to them. Um, and so it really depends on the client.
0: And just a. The- if I could just get your perspective on the question that I asked Ryan to begin with is do you find it uh, difficult to get past the difficult losses that we have in this profession?
1: Yes. Yes. And, but it, it, I feel like when there's something that I can do concretely um, to learn or work towards change on the basis of that loss, I'm able to get past it faster. Um, So, when I have a loss, but I think I always think back to the story that I heard um about Jack Pinkovsky, who is an incredible criminal defense lawyer who um as a, as a practice would um request disclosure regularly from the Crown and this was pre stinchcomb, pre the disclosure requirements, um to make a full answer in defense and he would be laughed at constantly. Um they're like, We you don't need disclosure, you know, this isn't part of our practice. This is not. We're not required to give you disclosure. And just the feedback that he got, and then he kept doing it, and he kept pushing it, and somehow the law caught up to him. And when I think about also my mentor Clayton Ruby, the the arguments that he was pushing, and the the, the progressive nature in which he saw the law could could become. Uh, he did the same thing. And I always think about, okay, I lost because I advanced an argument. Sometimes I advance arguments that are not accepted by the courts, but I'm thinking, okay, but I'm I, like, this kind of argument will be accepted in 10 years. And so for a client of mine who's in detention, who's facing disgusting, disgusting, like unacceptable treatment, but it is acceptable. Under the law currently, I make sure that I document it. I make sure that I'm constantly sending letters to the superintendent complaining about his treatment. And maybe at some point that'll become something. I can put that in an application record to get a stay. Right now I can't, but maybe in two years, maybe in three years, that practice will allow me. It wouldn't have allowed him to be released, but it will allow me to develop that kind of argument. And maybe I'm on the cutting edge of something. And I'm always thinking about pushing the law beyond the state where it is currently because I find it unacceptable and I'm not satisfied sitting on my, um, sitting on my laurels and, 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 and practicing law within the bounds of, of the legal rules that currently exist. Like I want to push it to where I want, where I want it to be. And the fact that I can do that with some of my losses, um, really helps me get over them.
0: I don't know how to answer, how to respond uh, to, to a, such a great answer because it's it's the idea that you move forward by moving forward, taking your case and taking it to the next step, which is a, a great way to think about it because a large part of what we're trying to do here in the law garage is provide some guidance or some tips for people in our profession especially younger lawyers in our profession and how to, you know, get past things, how to cope with things. And, you know, you get a wide variety of answers from a wide variety of guests. But an answer like this is take what you know, which is the law and your skills and continue to apply your skills to the case as best you can to try to get to that next step. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a great answer and a great way to frame it. I just want to ask both of you something that I found interesting um, is how... Ryan and Anna Maria, how did you meet? Because this is something that I wanted to.
2: I, I can. I'm the I'm the one who asked Anna Maria to come on the podcast, so I can just I can just say that um, through Twitter, I became a big admirer of Anna Maria, um, especially cannabis amnesty, which I think was the right cause at the right time. Uh, I really. I really admired the work that she did. Uh, also, uh, Andrea talks about pardons as well, which I think needs to be reformed, uh, as well. But, but in particular, I, I had an experience when I started practicing law, which I found shocking. Um, it was, it was, I think it was 2009, and I got a call from someone who was trying to cross the border. And, and I kid you not, it's not for the effect of the story. He had said he was driving with his family trying to go to Disney World and was being prevented from going because of a 1992 conviction for uh, possession of marijuana. And he was explaining to me on the phone that, oh, I just got a fine. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, a fine means you were convicted and sentenced to a fine. But if, if you step back and analyze what happened, um, he was probably – I mean, look, I don't know. I'm, I'm filling in the void based on the conversation I had. But he was probably told by some hack lawyer, oh, yeah, just plead guilty. You're just getting a fine. Don't worry about it. Like so much so much of the criminal justice system can be explained by that phenomenon and and it's very unfortunate, but you've got to realize like I talk about this with um Aboriginal accused people. there is a perverse incentive on legal aid to plead an Aboriginal person guilty for the lawyer and get the additional money uh, for a Gladu sentencing hearing. People need to understand. That human beings react to incentives no matter what the circumstance not everyone is ethical that phenomenon will occur so i was th- having this conversation and, and thinking it must have been a hack lawyer telling me no it's no big deal plead guilty and um and here he is 17 years later no record being prevented from going with his family to the united states it's horrifying
0: i thought he had a record well-
2: well, sorry, no record since that's what I meant. no records since nineteen ninety two yeah this tough. is the system we have, and so um so when anna Maria was was um talking about cannabis amnesty, no, not pardons, purges, long overdue, simple possession of marijuana they they did nothing harmful uh, th- This is not a crime anymore. purge it get rid of the records completely. And I just thought that that was the right cause at the right time. And, and um, yeah, I'm just, Anna Maria's, her, her articles, her, uh, her achievements. I, 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 became an admirer on Twitter and then. Um, well,
0: and- that's what I wanted to go to because Anna Maria, you met Ryan through Twitter. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah. I, I met Ryan through Twitter. And so there's a, there's a, a strong um, criminal defense community on Twitter and I find um, very beneficial to be on Twitter for that purpose. I think were it not for law Twitter, I just wouldn't be on Twitter because political Twitter is crazy. Um, so I try to just stick to law Twitter and I uh, started following Ryan, I think we interacted on a number of issues, maybe on Twitter, but one thing that I really liked about him um, that I started admiring was he had this independent libertarian streak to him that I find is so rare in lawyers. He was very independently minded. He was not afraid to um, to to write about issues that were close to his heart and his mind within the criminal defense subject matter that, that from a perspective that others did not um, share or that could be easily criticized as being not part of third of the mainstream perspective. And um, I think you got some flack for some of the articles that you wrote. Um, And I just, I I love being around people who are independent minded, who are contrarian, but who are also intellectually honest. And I found Ryan's writing to be very, um, very refreshing and we may not have agreed on a lot of things, but I think we actually agree on, on more than perhaps people who know us um, on Twitter based on our Twitter profiles um, might suspect. And um, I just thought that he, that like I, I I love surrounding myself with people who are, who have that personality and who have that drive and, and that perspective. And I just found my interactions with him to be very um, collegial and uh, made me think about things in ways that I hadn't thought about before and very honest and, Um, a friendship just developed from there.
0: And and that's what I wanted to follow up on is um, the fact that your friendship developed beyond your social media personas. How does that occur? And what can you say about why it should? It sounds like you're you're advocating that to go, go scratch below the surface, scratch below the tweets and try to find out what an individual is about rather than just you know, criticizing or attacking. Is is that what I'm getting from?
1: Yeah, I, I, so I don't think that we ever criticized or attacked each other on Twitter. I don't think so. I'm not sure you would, but I'm
0: saying what happens on social media right now seem to be very divisive.
1: And there are, so there are, there are, um, people who on social media, I have strongly, strongly disagreed with on issues and we, you know, um, message back and forth. And then, um, one of those, one of those individuals, I haven't asked him if I could talk about our our friendship, so I'm not going to say his name, but on Twitter, we'd be considered very different, um, sort of have very different agendas. And, um, we were in a very heated discussion about, I don't know, something, some area of law. And, um, he sent me sort of like a, a, a joke tweet saying, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be at dinner with my family but I'm I'm debating you can we can we do this some other time and it, I th- just thought it was really like funny and uh and so we started debating it uh, some other time and then we met in person and it diffused any of the the the, t- the tension or the the anger that I think anonymous and deep depersonified debates can create um we're all human We're we we may have um, different backgrounds and politics and, um, and priorities, but at the same, but at the same time where there, we have so much in common. And I think the, the more we spend time physically in proximity to each other, the more that we are likely to see that humanity and see parts of ourselves in another person, even though they are so different than us. And so I really do try, like when I, um, uh, when there's somebody that I admire or, or want to debate or want to talk to, i ask them for lunch. Um, and I think we, ha- that's how we met for the first time. We went for lunch, um, during the work day and talked about things that matter to us. And I remember we had scheduled, uh, I think an hour for lunch and we ended up sitting there for three hours, yeah. three or four, three or I four remember. hours. Yeah. We had like, I think it was from one to two lunch and I ended up leaving the, the restaurant at like five or something. It, we just had so much to talk about.
0: That's good, right?
2: It's just um, the process of law. You could have a novel argument. You want somebody to listen to it. You want, that's all you can ask for. The result you can't guarantee, but that somebody is going to listen to the argument and consider it, that we have to be able to guarantee our clients. And Twitter doesn't always, I, I, I love Twitter for some things, but it, there's this there's this negative aspect of Twitter, like this sort of negative energy, this trolling, this depersonified interaction. Um, but but what's interesting is that it makes Twitter makes it hard to take a nuanced position. I think what was interesting is when we got together is is how much uh, we agreed and and where we disagreed. It was uh, it was like I felt like I learned from the conversation. I actually wrote a blog about my lunch with Ann Maria because I, I had said that I had missed so much from the pandemic, this idea of, of being in the trenches and just seeing uh, criminal defense lawyers. Hey, what case are you working on? What's the case about? What's your client charged with?
1: I love that. I I really miss that. The hallway that. sort of like,
2: Yeah. Um, But anyway, anybody who knows me knows my favorite rant is that students have got screwed by the circumstances that they're in law students (laughs) tuition has gone up class sizes have gone up, they have put them in terrible circumstances. And I can remember, um, Anna Maria saying to me, well, uh, you know, maybe, but resilience is a part of life. And Uh, People need to understand, no matter what they study, uh, not everything goes well or goes right, right away. And, you know, life requires resilience. It could take five years. It could take 10 years. It could take 20 years. Uh, You shouldn't despair and complain. Uh, You've got to show resilience. I I think the point being there was another side of, of my rant. That well, the students, uh, even if they're in bad circumstances, they've got a you know some of them are not showing that kind of resilience. They are resorting to complaining um, and even despairing or giving up before demonstrating that um, that type of resilience that's necessary for success in life. And I remember walking away from the lunch and thinking to myself, you know, I I I learned something. There's a, there's another side um, to my favorite rant that I should consider.
0: And um, I'm laughing because, uh, among resilience, I mean, Ryan, you've been pretty resilient. I mean, when I met you, you had very little experience in criminal law. You started your own practice with just, you know, you had this great experience working at, at Eddie Greenspan's office, but you didn't have that junior experience of like being a junior lawyer in the trenches experience. And you built up, practice out of that that's that was as resilient as they come
2: Uh, i did show resilience uh, (laughs) i'm proud of that fact i mean i'm I'm happy about that i
0: you didn't complain that much either i didn't complain not to you anyway (laughs) (laughs) my
2: poor wife at home she heard all my complaining
0: we complained Uh, about you
2: yeah you (laughs) you guys complained about me (laughs) you know why they complained about me I didn't, ha- I didn't have an office at the time, so I was using their office supplies. That, oh. was, that was the complaint. <laughs> and I then think. he bought
0: himself a new car. <laughs> I'm run out of Staples. Ryan has a new car. <laughs> that was my complaint. That's amazing. <laughs>
2: it, was a, it was a really fun time. I'm glad you are one of the people I learned from because you think differently than me. Like I'm more of a conceptual thinker. I'm sure you're a great conceptual thinker also, but you're, you're also a practical thinker.
0: I already How- invited you on the show, right? You don't have to, <laughs> have to butter me up anymore. Fair
2: enough. <laughs> I want to make sure it's edited
0: properly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Anna Maria, can you tell me uh, if there's a lawyer that you've had the privilege of seeing litigate in your career that really stuck out to you? Or even if there isn't, if there's somebody that you wish you had the opportunity to see?
1: Uh, I think I was very privileged to, um, early in my entry into criminal defense. So I came from New York to Toronto and was immediately hired by, by Clayton Ruby's firm. And, um, I was under the impression that the, the majority of my work would be with his two junior partners, which, which are Gerald Chan and Nader Hassan. And within two months of my arrival, um, they left the firm and went to Stockwoods, um, and which left me basically as Clay's junior for everything. And that opportunity, that gave me an opportunity to really see him in action and see him in court uh, very, 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 very often, uh, more than I would have otherwise. And um, it was such a privilege, I remember this one case that we did, um, where he executed a cross-examination so brilliantly that you could not have left the courtroom not thinking that the witness was a sociopath. Um, It was so incredible, and should not be believed. It was so incredible. You could hear a pin drop after every answer. Um, And just the way he, he instrumentalized the disclosure and the, the third-party records that we had received and weaved it into a narrative. I think cross-examination is the hardest part of criminal law practice. It's so hard to, to build a compelling story of your client's innocence when human instinct is... is Falls along the lines of the expression where there's smoke there 's fire, and so your client is already at a disadvantage and to be able to effectively cross examine somebody um, is is like something that i 'm always chasing i 'm always trying to trying to build on on build my skills in that area and watching him cross examine was such a privilege because it was so skillful and yet done in a way that the 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 observer was able to follow along and say oh he's just telling me a story about the truth this is the truth and so I was very privileged to have been able to see that he's now retired so effectively Mm
0: -hmm. that's nice and Ryan Uh, I was also I
2: was very privileged to see uh, great lawyers litigate uh, Todd White and Eddie Greenspan who were the partners and Michael Lacey uh, who often worked with with Eddie so I was al- I was also very privileged uh, and I remember the last case that I watched was a high profile case uh where someone was charged with conspiracy to commit murder and uh one of the the really good qualities that Eddie had was he had a very uh, curious mind so um he was always digging through the layers in his cases which is not something that everybody does. Uh, Anna Maria mentioned Jack Pinkowski. There didn't used to be disclosure, but there's, there's layers to disclosure. There's what they provide, but then what, what else is there? What else is part of the story? He was very good at that. So uh, what, what ended up happening, there was a, at first a mistrial for uh, a a reasonable apprehension of bias a a judge had made some comments during the trial that were improper so there was a reasonable apprehension of bias application which was accepted by that judge and then for the second trial uh, there was a witness that the defense was interested in and uh, requested a a number of items of disclosure about that witness the crown fought but they were then provided and then that witness died under suspicious circumstances so um there was another mistrial application because now we need disclosure of everything related to the death uh, under suspicious circumstances and then ultimately, the end of the story is the Crown chose not to proceed on the third trial. And it was, it was so interesting, it was such an interesting lesson that uh, you have to dig through those layers as a defense lawyer because you just never know what's going to happen in a criminal case. I, I, I love tennis, I love Rafael Nadal. I try to use this as an analogy he doesn't conserve energy on any point he chases down the ball and he hits it back if he's capable of chasing it down and what ends up happening if you watch a lot of his matches is his opponent gets tired not him so that was like an example of rafael nadal style advocacy hit it back and see what happens we want disclosure of this we're subpoenaing this witness and lo and behold, it was that strategy that ended up bearing fruit. So I also, uh, I also felt very privileged to get to have the opportunity to watch that. One other trial that I wish I could have seen. It's um, it's very much in line with what Anna Marie is saying about how the law develops. Uh, the D Brown trial that that Steve Skirka did the first time that um, somebody has advanced a racial prof- a challenge based on the police stop being tainted by racial profiling. The response was extremely hostile. Uh, the judge at the end of the case, after convicting asked him if he wanted D Brown to apologize. And that case was recently cited by the court of appeal. And I think it was justice Feldman saying that that case was the, the seminal case on racial profiling. And I wish I could have seen. I, I've been in trial hell myself and haven't done so well. So I, I wish I could have seen uh, that case from the beginning and the hostile response to the court of appeal. That's something that I wish I could have seen. How does the lawyer deal with that circumstance? You're, you're advocating something new. A judge is being hostile. How do you do it? Um, so that's something I would have loved to have seen.
0: And i you're nodding.
1: Yeah, I teach that that uh, case. So I teach a a seminar at Queen's University Faculty of Law um, called bias and criminal justice system outcomes. And we do talk about racial bias. And but one of the things that I really want to teach my students is these arguments are not easy to make. And so I teach that that case to students for the purpose of demonstrating how humiliating it can be to try to advance an argument where you are not in line with the general consensus of the bench or the bar and to have to be confronted by the the, in that case just to elaborate a little bit the um, judge suggested to the accused to actually apologized to the police officer for even daring to suggest that he was racial that the stop was racially motivated that's incredibly humiliating Um, and for a lawyer it can deter you from making those kinds of arguments in the future that is it has a chilling effect and so one of the greatest lessons i try to impart on my students is you have to have courage to make these arguments because you will be humiliated you will not just be shut down or disagreed with you will be humiliated and courage is so much a part of the work that we do so you have to find a way to find your courage in order to advocate for your client
2: most of the time by the way you will not be vindicated he was Extraordinarily fortunate to be vindicated by the court of appeal. Most of the time, you're going to be humiliated, and you're not going to be vindicated. So um, it, it does. It, I totally agree. It does take courage and and fortitude and and mental strength. I would say uh, mental and physical strength to be able to be a criminal defense lawyer.
0: Anna Maria, Anna Najor yeah, and Ryan Henlarski. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues, which is something that I've really missed throughout this pandemic, and I know that both of you have missed as well. Before we leave, um, is there anything either of you would like to plug?
2: Uh, I, I can go, f- I can go first. If sure. anybody wants to, I, I don't, I haven't blogged for a while, but if anybody wants, you can uh, look me up on Twitter at RH defense or my blog at RH criminal defense. But, uh, but the, the thing that I would want to plug, I've got an an article coming out next week in the UBC law review. Uh, so look out for that article. It's uh, it's an issue that most people may not find interesting, it's very particular, but uh, but there's two lines of authority in Canada about what is the definition of a public park uh, in Section 161, Sub 1, Sub A of the Criminal Code. So my contention in my article is that it, it's got to be the narrow definition of a public park as opposed to the broader definition. I think it's interesting. There's different lines of authority in Ontario and British Columbia, So uh, so... Look out for that next week.
1: As Ryan mentioned earlier, I'm part of an initiative called Cannabis Amnesty. Um, It is a not-for-profit organization that I started with several um, colleagues and friends who are passionate about criminal justice reform. And at the outset, what we sought to do was to persuade the government uh, when cannabis became legal in Canada to pass automatic expungements of criminal records for simple cannabis possessions for all Canadians who had that on their records. We campaigned for that for in quite some quite some time. Um, in response to that, the government passed bill C93, which offers expedited um, and free in quotes because you still have to pay a lot of fees to to obtain your records or the documents required, but free um, records expungement uh, records suspensions for people with previous cannabis convictions on their records um, since then our mandate has expanded to include um, broader social justice initiatives including um, campaigning for greater representation of racialized Canadians in the cannabis industry itself um, criminal justice reform and relating to broader um, Part, part, seeking pardons more broadly, um, as well as drug reform uh, for for Canada, and so if you'd like to learn more about that initiative to volunteer for us, we also um, we have a website, uh, cannabisamnesty.ca. Um, in addition to that. We are starting an initiative partnering with uh, cannabis companies um, to fund a legal clinic for everybody, for people in Canada who have cannabis convictions, not just simple possession, but more broadly, cannabis convictions on their records. We're in the pilot project phase of that. I understand that you'll have Laura Licio, uh on later in the season.
0: That's maybe before. We don't know. Depending on when when they air.
1: But we are um, in the process of putting that together um, and uh, and recommitting to our in our desire to to transform um, the criminal justice landscape uh, through the opportunity that were created by the legalization of cannabis in Canada. So if you're all, if you're at all interested in that, then uh, please look us up online. We're also on Twitter at Cannabis Amnesty.
0: Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Marco.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwal. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production. <laughs> it's okay. I'm happy to I'd rather do it right because I'm gonna mispronounce it the whole time. And hold on. Hold on. And an Yes, yes. Thank yes. you. Yes. Okay. Today in the garage we have Anna Maria and an adjore. And an And <laughs> an Did I say it right? Or no?
1: You said and an adore. And an
0: And an Clip me again. <laughs> Clap me again. I gotta get th- I'm gonna get this right. Today in the garage we have Anna Maria and an Let me do it again. (laughs) Clap it again. Clap it again. (laughs) You're
1: getting closer. And then Najor.
0: Today in the garage, we have Anna Maria and then Najor.